Hello, I'm John Ryan, and you're very welcome to the next episode in our Work Healthy podcast. There actually could be really good news for you in this podcast today. You may be more intelligent than you thought you were. Have you ever completed an IQ test and maybe been a little bit disappointed by the result? Well, our interviewee today, Howard Gardner, questioned whether the IQ test actually measures intelligence reliably. That led to his development of his theory of multiple intelligences, which saw him propose eight intelligences, including spatial, bodily kinesthetic, musical, linguistic, logical, mathematical, interpersonal, intrapersonal, and finally naturalistic. His theory inspired many educationalists to rethink intelligence and their general approach to education. In this wide-ranging interview, we discuss multiple intelligences, why people need to unlearn and relearn, how a synthesizing mind works, life-changing moments, the importance of making ethical decisions, and who Howard thinks was the most important person in the last thousand years. I started by asking Howard to remind people about his theory of multiple intelligences. About 40 years ago, in the early 1980s, uh, I put together the results of many years of research by other people and by myself. And it was a critique of the notion that intelligence is a single thing that can be measured by a single test. And if you're smart in one thing, you're smart in everything. If you're average in one thing, you're average in everything. And if you don't do, do well in one thing, you won't do well in other things. Now, any teacher or any parent who has more than one child will know that that's nonsense. Uh, you know, if you're good in music, it doesn't tell you a thing about whether you're going to be good in understanding other people or in uh, building something or in uh, um, understanding yourself or in uh, solving crossword puzzles. Um, but uh, in psychology, uh, individuals were blind or deaf to that because we had something called the IQ test and it was commercially successful. And it does predict pretty well how people will do in school, but last year's grades were a much better predictor than an IQ test. So anyway, I wrote a 400 page book with uh, lots of evidence from many disciplines. Um, and I put forth the notion that the human mind is not a single computer, but a bunch of relatively independent computers, which I call the multiple intelligences. <clears throat> At the time I posited seven intelligences, and I said linguistic and logical mathematicals are the ones which standard IQ tests test, but they don't test spatial intelligence or musical intelligence or bodily intelligence and so on. Um, I've since added one or two more intelligences, but always on the basis of a lot of evidence. Um, you said rightly that uh, um, many people don't know about MI theory, and that's fine. Almost everybody knows about emotional intelligence, which is a term created by Daniel Goleman, who's a friend and who actually built on my work and kindly said so. Um, but emotional intelligence is just another critique of uh, the standard view of, of intellect, which you still read in psychology textbooks. In fact, uh, if I remember when EQ first came out, the subtitle of the book was Why It May Matter More Than IQ. And whether that's true or not, it's a good sales point. So that's MI theory. And I've either been praised or haunted, and haunted by the theory of multiple intelligence for the last 40 years. But uh, I've gone on to other things, and I hope they will focus almost entirely on other things 
today. Sure, yeah. No, absolutely. And, and all I really want to, to say around uh, the work you did, I, I personally found it very liberating uh, because I obviously as a, a, a child was marched into a room in my school and had to fill out uh, multiple choice shapes, documents, uh, spellings and patterns. And it told me I was very average. Uh, <laughs> and um, and then when I read what you wrote, uh, it made me feel much better about myself. So I, I just do think uh, it can be uh, quite fantastic. So the, the, the applications in the um, sort of learning environments were probably where it had most impact. Would that be true? Sure, but learning environment isn't just school. Um, sure. It's the home, it's museums, it's HR offices at corporations. And over the last 40 years, I've had as much contact as I wanted <laughs> with mm -hmm. these different, uh, shall we say, um, customers for multiple intelligence. And just as you said, some of your listeners don't know about the theory, and that's fine. I hear from people in countries I haven't even heard of who want to translate it and uh, make use of it. So it's an idea that, that will last, and uh, it's gotten me a lot of interesting trips. But I'm a scholar. And one thing scholars hate to do is repeat ourselves. So um, I've moved on. And indeed, when I decided to write a memoir, I realized, and this is key to our conversation today, I realized that multiple intelligence does not explain my own mind. I'm a fairly standard academic. I did well in IQ tests. I was good in language and good in logic. Um, my other intelligences and stupidities are for extra credit. Uh, <laughs> they, don't, they don't really count for my work particularly. But what made me distinctive, and I've spent the last two or three years obsessed with this, is I have a synthesizing mind. We all know about analysis, where you go deeply into something and you try to get to the heart of it. And we all know about synthesis, where you put lots of stuff together and try to make sense of it and then see what other people agree with it as well. And in my work, including my writing, and I've written many books, I basically synthesize. I um, survey many different bodies of knowledge. I read a lot, I watch a lot, I try things out a lot, I get a lot of critique, and then I try to put those ideas together. So I've written a book about leadership, which is a synthesis of what it means to be a leader, of creativity, what it means to be a creative individual. And for anybody who is a demon for punishment, if you go to my website uh, and you say blogs and you see synthesizing, there are 50 blogs on different aspects of synthesis that I've, that I've studied and, and, and tried to understand. Now, I'm a psychologist and synthesizing sounds like something that psychologists should have a lot to say about, but we don't, and I can tell you why. Um, if we want to test somebody's memory, we bring them in, we give them some words, some pictures, we put them aside and we see if we remember them. Um, if we want to test vocabulary, you know, we give them some words and see if we can define them. If we want to test uh, whether they can manipulate something spatially, we show them a, a diagram and then we show them the diagram upside down and see if we can uh, figure out what the original one was. But we can't test synthesizing in a few minutes. It's an endeavor which takes a long time. Uh, Darwin is my favorite example. You know, Darwin went on the Beagle when he was in his 20s. Mm -hmm. And then for 30 years, he thought about what he'd seen, what he um, documented, what he'd drawn. He didn't have photographs. His correspondence with uh, 
um, naturalists all over the world. And then finally, when he was almost 60, he put this together in what I would argue is the greatest scholarly work of synthesis in the last few centuries, The Origin of Species. Uh, that's a synthesis, but you, you couldn't have taken Charles Darwin, who was kind of a goof off when he was young in the psych lab for a figure out and for 10 minutes and figure out he was a good synthesis. Synthesizing takes time. And if I can make any educational um, contribution going forward, I would like teachers, and that doesn't just mean teachers in school, I mean teachers at home, your parents, your family, teachers at the workplace, your managers, your boss, your colleagues, to try to help people develop better capacities for synthesis. And I'll give you a very compelling reason. Anything that's simple and straightforward nowadays, computers will do infinitely faster than any of us and infinitely more accurate. But um, while computers can synthesize, they're no better than the stuff you give them. And if there's prejudice in the stuff you give them, it will come out prejudiced. And when there's something new that comes along, Computers won't be able to synthesize it because they won't have know what knowledge is relevant. So um, I'm trying to put synthesizing on the map as a, okay. a final move in this uh, cognitive chess game. And so ju just so the people understand what synthesis is versus summary, you know, bringing all the work of a particular discipline together and summarizing it versus uh, synthesizing it. Can you just explain that differential? Sure, that's a very appropriate question. And any good textbook is a synthesis because it's a summary of what's been done and maybe it's written in a compelling way and it's got some uh, pictures and so on. Um, uh, but synthesis can range from banal. I mean, if uh, somebody hears this podcast and somebody else says, what was it? Oh, there's this American who talked about intelligence and synthesis. That's, that's a summary. Um, but if it's a synthesis, it's very banal. You know, for me, uh, and this is fundamental, in synthesis, you have to have something you want, that you want to achieve. You have to have a goal. Um, you have to have a plan of how you reach it. You have to decide what data are relevant, what information is relevant, what sources are relevant, and which ones don't seem to be relevant, though you may change. It's good to have in your mind uh, a previous example of a synthesis so you don't go off have cocked, but then the art of the synthesis is organizing information. And in my book of Synthesizing Mind, I write a lot about the way that people can organize information. I love taxonomies, but some people hate them. They like to do mind mapping, they like to do metaphors, they like to do stories, they like to do music. We can synthesize in ways that are comfortable to us. Once we've done a synthesis that satisfies us, we don't have to try it out on other people. Because if it works for us, but for nobody else, it might be useful for studying for an exam, but it's not going to be useful for anybody else. The critique is very important. So when I write an article or a book, I get a lot of reactions from people, and then I, I whittle the synthesis, and I may have it tested out again on people who I trust, what we call critical friends, people who won't just yeah, shoot me. Tell you what you want to hear. Tell me what, what that's right. Or don't. Uh, and then finally, a synthesis has to go out into the world. And as your question, implies some of these syntheses are fine, but many other people could have done them. Some of them are original and they give you some new ideas, and some of them are, are groundbreaking. Um, you know, they really help us make sense of things in a way that nobody has done before. And those are the Karl Marx, the Charles Darwin, in music, uh, you know, the Igor Stravinsky, 
um, the Beatles, people who, Bob Dylan, people who put stuff together in ways that nobody has done before. And people say, my goodness, they, uh, they really got it. Yeah, it's, a, it's amazing, isn't it? Uh, music is that classic example where there's only so many notes and yet just by putting them in a different order, you can have such an amazing uh, impact on people and they sing those tunes for the rest of their lives. So I mean, you obviously synthesized all of the, the information around intellect and um, came up with, you know, what you gave the world. And thank you very much for, for doing that, because I think it's helped an awful lot of people. But you then put yourself open to kind of being criticized and uh, in, in listening to your your book, uh, Synthesized, uh, Synthesizing Mind, that is something that that happens, doesn't it, when you put a, a proposition out into the world? How do you deal with that? Well, um, nobody wants to be ignored. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. You don't, you don't spend 10 years on the book with the hope that nobody will read it. Um, yeah. And what you want is informed criticism. Mm. Um, and I have to say, as somebody who's written literally 30 books, I'm not exaggerating, um, mm -hmm. it's rare that you get informed criticism. Uh, sometimes people say, well, this is all BS. Sometimes they say, this is the best thing since sliced bread. But I want a critique where people have read it, taken it seriously, and then show what's wrong with it. And let me use two examples. Multiple intelligence, this is an old work. I lay out the criteria for what counts as an intelligence. That's the heart of the book. That's what took five years, was to identify the criteria and to look at dozens of candidate intelligences and see which one met the criteria and which one we didn't. I would be lucky if 5% of the reviews of the book ever talk about the criteria. Yeah. The, the reviews are the projections of what the person read when they saw the title. <laughs> now, I've just published a new book, even more recently than The Synthesizing Mind, with my longtime colleague, Wendy Fishman, it's called The Real World of College. It's an important book about American colleges and has been, often been true to me. People abroad are more interested of it in, in it than people in the United States. We could talk a long time about that. But this is something that's new, never happened to me before, never happened to Wendy before. The book is being critiqued politically. People on the left say, well, why didn't you spend all your time talking about um, demography, you know, about uh, uh, difference and about equity uh, and uh, inclusion, DEI, we call it. And people on the right said, why are you criticizing college? It's a business. They're making money. Uh, and if they pay the, the football coach 100 times more than the Spanish teacher, that's fine. And we don't discuss either of these things in the book. But people are projecting their politics, whereas before, I would say, in the intelligence, they're just projecting their prejudices. So it's yeah, very yeah. disconcerting. If you're an artist of any sort, and as a writer, I'm an artist of sorts, if people yep. don't make a serious effort to figure out what you're doing and why. Now, having said that, uh, you know, on the outside, you'd say multiple intelligence has been successful. You know, there are many books about it. There are many commercial efforts about it. I always tell my kids they'd be very rich if I had copyrighted it, but I ethically opposed to that. Um, but your question was, um, how do you deal with criticism, and here's a short answer, you take it seriously if the critic took your work seriously. That's very good. Yeah, that makes an awful lot of sense. So, I mean, when I look that's at... A all... That's a synthesis, by the way, uh, <laughs> because it took it 500 is. words, and then after the other, those 500 words, it's, well, actually, you want to be taken seriously. 
Yeah, yeah, I get it. So, I mean, your your main work uh, over those years has related to the mind. And I suppose I'm just intrigued to know, do you think people seriously analyse their own minds in this world? Or do they just kind of sleepwalk around the world um, and, and going in the route of least resistance? Because um, oftentimes, and the, the reason I, I ask that is it, when we go into workplaces, in a lot of cases, we meet people who are very unhappy and um, they kind of have fallen into a career or a role, an organization. It's it's maybe not the right role for them. It's not the right culture. It's not the right environment, the, the right leadership. And you ask them why they're still there and they say, well, sure, I need the money. Um, and there's a deep sense of resentment. And, and sometimes I feel that people haven't thought long and hard enough about who they are and their their skills and their talents and where those can actually be best used so that work for them won't be really hard. And that's where I, I think it's interesting, like, you know, when with your multiple intelligences, you know, if you put me while I can do maths and all that, it doesn't come easy and natural to me, whereas you know verbal and linguistic is is probably you know where i enjoy most of my time uh, spent and um, so in in terms of that question then the, the the human mind and do you think there's a need to get people to take their minds seriously and understand themselves better so that they'll have better lives well i'm going to dissect your question a bit um if you look at my my resume my vita uh CV, you'll see that many books I've written have the word mind. Right. Um, but the kind of mind I'm interested in primarily is what we might call the cognitive mind, the yep. thinking mind, the reasoning mind, the creative mind, one about how, uh, you know, how we um, understand things and how we contribute new things. Um, what you're asking about is what I would call intrapersonal intelligence, one of my seven or eight intelligences. Yep. And intrapersonal intelligence means having a, a serious and uh, hoping toward effortless, effortful um, understanding of your own mind, which would include, as you said, the strengths you have, the things you like, and so on. This is a, actually a very modern question. Um, I think if we went back a few centuries, uh, maybe before the 18th century, uh, people didn't think about their minds at all. Uh, I mean, they belonged to churches. Um, you know, they, took the received wisdom from the Bible. Um, and uh, you know, they used the word we, they didn't use the word I. Um, and I think that's still true in many parts of the world. Um, I've read Fintan O'Toole's History <laughs> of Ireland, and I think a lot oh, well between 1958 and, uh, <laughs> and, and today. And uh, uh, some of it isn't very good. I mean, some of it is too much I. Um, but mm. this is a modern question that you're asking. It's not a, mm. a question that anybody would have asked in, um, in Martin Luther's time. Um, that said, um, you know, uh, therapy is certainly something which is, you know, my grandparents wouldn't have heard of it. And now I know almost nobody who hasn't been in therapy of some sort for some period of time. And therapy is designed to help you understand yourself better. Um, that's a little bit different than what you asked, um, because you know you can feel uncomfortable in a setting and want to be in a new setting. It doesn't require any particular uh, 
interpersonal intrapersonal intelligence on your part. You know, if you put me in a on a on a labor uh, camp, in a sweat camp, and I had to heave uh, shovels of dhamma every day, I would certainly want to go and work at Starbucks instead. But that wasn't any particular kind of uh, insight on my part. I just wanted to get out of the rain. Um, your question is a question I would say, uh, I'm making this up now, halfway between psychotherapy and HR, HR being human resources. Mm. Uh, if you want to think about the niches in your world where you'll be happiest and most productive, um, and that's of course work, but it's also love life and family mm. life and where you are able to live, um, some of that um, insight should come from therapy even if, if it isn't official. I mean, we all read books about uh, how to make ourselves different from the way we are. Um, but you know, the, ins the insight can also come from a person in a company who says, you know, uh, I can see you're not very happy with, uh, with, with what you're doing, John, um, but, but we like you in the company. Um, would you like to do some work instead in the, uh, in the, in the, in the advertising department rather than in the sales department. Um, mm. So I think it's uh, uh, the how to make yourself feel that you belong and you're productive is something where lots of things can be helpful to you. Um, you referred to good work, which is the umbrella under which my high, Csikszentmihalyi, William Damon and I began the Good Work Project now over 25 years ago. And good work is composed of three concepts which begin with the letter E, one of which relates directly to your question. Good work is excellent. That means people know what they're doing and know how they do it. It's ethical. That's what I'm particularly interested in. You can be quite skilled and use it to, to commit larceny, right? Uh, mm, yeah. But the third E is engagement. We discovered empirically that people can't continue to do good work unless they're personally engaged. And your question is really a question, I think, about engagement. Um, what keeps you going to work and even liking it, even when it's difficult? I'm going to be 80 this year. Um, I work every day. I don't have to work, though, when the stock market goes down, I, I feel maybe <laughs> we should, should be working a bit harder. Um, <laughs> but obviously, I find it engaging. And mm. when the time comes that I stop finding it engaging, I either have to find something different to do or retire. Mm. Mm. Well, I, I mean, I think retirement has bad outcomes, doesn't it? Uh, so <laughs> I think often people for, should often for men worse than for women. Yeah, now yeah. Now it may be different in the 21st century, but in the 19th and 20th century, it was much more difficult for men because they had a routine for 50 years, yeah. and then suddenly they were sitting around all day, and if they couldn't golf anymore, uh, it yeah. was difficult. For women, yeah. a lot of women's work continues whether they're at the workplace or not. But go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, no, no. I, I mean, like you, you mentioned there, one of your colleagues in the Good Work uh, Project, who unfortunately is no longer with us, and that was uh, Mihai Cech sent Mihai. Um, and it, we've incorporated his um, theories into uh, our Healthy Place to Work model, and that being flow. Um, so, I mean, I, I, th I think it's somewhere in between engagement and excellence, really, it, it, the last question I was asking, because you know, it, it's it's that moment, I think, in an organization where you've come across a brilliant leader or manager or the like who takes time to understand you and watch you and see, maybe see things that you don't see about yourself and could direct you into 
another role uh, that gives you a sense of purpose and meaning and passion in, in, in your life. And that can be a life changing moment for people where it, t- it takes them out of everything seeming like hard work to actually something seeming like purpose and passion where they're kind of going, I can't believe I'm actually getting paid for this. I do it for free anyway. Yeah, I, I have to say, though, we're now working in Singapore on people who have uh, lost their jobs and helping them to get new jobs. Would you, would you describe, uh, John, is magical. Uh, it's not the routine. Uh, mm. You're mm. very, very lucky if you've been miserable in your position and somebody taps you over your shoulder and says, no, nah, go somewhere else. Um, in fact, usually, I mean, we we're studying this, you have to do unlearning. You have to unlearn certain things that you didn't, didn't that you um, thought were appropriate, but they're not for the new job. And then you have to become engaged, which is what you and I are talking about. You have to find meaning in it. And you really find meaning right away, but meaning is something that emerges as you go deeper into it and you see what you can do and what's appreciated and also what you can't do and where you can get help and what's not appreciated, maybe because infringes on other people. <laughs> you know, if I discover I'm a very good writer and I go to the newspaper and I take over three columns, that puts three people out of the job. Now that's not going to happen, but it's a, it's a yeah. thought experiment. What you yeah. described was very interesting because it's partly excellent, but it's partly ethics. Namely, the leader doesn't have to help Johnny yeah. get a better, better position, but it's the right thing to do. Um, yeah. It's the right thing to try to help people have a better niche. The same thing with I have kids and grandkids. If they're not happy, uh, you know, part of my responsibility is not to say you need to do this and not that, but to think a lot about what niche might be better for them. But it's not. It's just it's very little magic in this world. Hmm. And to, I'm, I'm interested because you, you mentioned children and the like, and um, one of your areas when you're talking about ethics and ethical decisions and the like, and then. You mentioned um, the effect that digital media has on, you know, young people nowadays. I'm just interested in your thoughts on that. It, you know, are we in a good place? Do you think uh, the effects that digital media has had? Because I don't know uh, what age your kids are, or grandchildren, but mine are, are still teenagers, and um, they spend so much time stuck on a mobile phone, um, and I'm actually really concerned about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, um, but uh, I mean, here's a pen, right? Mm. Um, I can use it to write poetry. I can use it to poke somebody else's eye out. I think the problem is not uh, the, the technology per se, but uh, you know, the invention of social media and what they enable very easily. Um, and you know, the people who invent them are very good at kept, capturing your eyeballs and keeping them there. Now, if they were they had you reading Shakespeare and painting like Cezanne, you and I wouldn't be, <laughs> we wouldn't be looking down at it. But of course, they know uh, the lowest common denominator, so to speak. Um, mm. I did have two of my uh, teen grandkids with us this weekend, and they were each on their devices for most of the time. It didn't make me very happy. But what interested me, John, is they didn't miss anything else that was going on. So I think for them, it's almost like background. Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, they can do whatever it's called, Sudoku, uh, yeah. but they can still follow the conversation and participate. Um, so I think we need to take a, a we, 
we should neither praise nor condemn uh, either, either the digital world or the social media. We have to say that they can be put to benign or malignant purposes. And uh, I don't try to rule what my children or grandchildren do with their devices, but if I had a, uh, if I was 40, 50 years younger and I had young children, there'd be rules. Uh, and mm. I don't care, really care if their friends are online all the time, they're not going yeah. to be. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I have to make them so they understand why. And so we do things that are meaningful. I mean, it's nothing worse than a parent who tries to police a child in the meantime is looking at his own device. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, lead by example and all that. Yeah. So in terms of uh, ethical decisions, do you think um, people are good at ethical decisions? Obviously, you've built up a, a, a database uh, in the Good Project um, where you've probably tested a lot of people in terms of those ethical decisions that you asked them to make. Are, are people improving, getting better? Is it about awareness? of the implications of decisions or, or what, what are the biggest players there? I think awareness is a very important um, concept. We did a study of colleges that I referred to earlier. The book is mm. called The Real World of College. And um, we interviewed in detail a thousand college students in the United States, like university students yeah, yeah. In, in, in Ireland. And most of them weren't even aware of what ethics means. And when we asked them to think about ethical dilemmas, it was something they hadn't even thought about before. So the bar is very set very, very low in the United States. Um, and I can't speak for, for other countries. Um, but all of my work now as part of the, the Good Project with many, many good colleagues is to raise the profile of ethics in American school children and indeed uh, uh, in, in young people all over the world. I've just written a blog that will be posted in a few weeks about preschool in China, Japan, and the United States. Because as young as three or four children in those three countries, and China and the United States are big, and Japan is not small either, are treated totally different as young as three or four. And when you follow that through, through secondary school, college, and workplace, um, you end up having individuals of very different moral and ethical awareness. Um, and uh, yeah, if I wanted to give a very short answer to your question, the ethical muscle is hardly developed at all in most young people in the United States. The difference, and this may be surprising to you, and it was surprising to me, and I don't want to be misunderstood, if you go to a mission-driven school, which is typically religious, but it could be military or historically black, at least people know why they're there. And having a mission um, translates into being more aware of when that mission is violated. Um, mm. Now, I'm completely secular myself, and mm. I think it was actually tremendous progress in the United States when we stopped having um, colleges and universities which were all religious. But we lost something profound when we became completely secular which was a sense of why we're there and why we're doing things. So I mm. think to, be, to become pompous, as we come to the close of this, mm. is uh, um, the real challenge in the 21st century uh, all over the world is to create a religion which doesn't pit us against one another. I mean, the mm. problem with religions, and I'm talking to, to Ireland and Northern Ireland here, is they've been incredibly divisive for the last mm. thousand years, maybe the last 10,000 years. 
But mm. belief in something beyond yourself, belief in the planet, belief in other people, even if they look different from you, and trying to do the right thing when they're diseases and when they're powerful weapons, including social media, that's not going to work unless there's some kind of religion. I can't even imagine what it would be. But when people ask me at the end of the last century, who was the most important human being? Um, I said the most important human being in the last millennium, thousand years, was Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi. Mm. I said, I'm not going to say 2,000 years, because I don't want to get in trouble with Mormons yeah. or with <laughs> Islam or with Christians. Yeah. Uh, um, but uh, uh, Gandhi understood that uh, with our weaponry, we would wipe ourselves out. And if we only were pushing Hindus versus Muslims or Muslims versus Hindus, would be the same thing. So we, we had to believe in handling disagreements nonviolence and trying to find common ground. Um, if I ask a thousand kids in America who Gandhi is, I'd be lucky if I found three who would know. I would, really? suspect, it's, I would really? suspect the same thing in Ireland, maybe not in England, because he spent a lot of time in England. Um, but of course, it doesn't matter uh, whether they know him, because if they know Martin Luther King or they know Nelson Mandela, they know about nonviolent um, protest. So mm. his ideas mm. haven't died. But yeah. I, I'd like I to. Mean, yeah, unfortunately, um, many people do things in the, the the name of religion that are very um, far away from the ethics of the religion that they purport. But um, uh, so, I mean, it, it, it's really interesting. I, just as I said at the start, um, I, that challenge you just put, I wonder how many people would know Gandhi. I would have thought if you take a, a thousand students um, that you'd have 900 at least that would know them. But I'd, I'd love to test that. But then again, I thought most people would know multiple intelligences. <laughs> so maybe I'm overemphasizing that. I could just as as we are coming to a close. And I, again, thank you so much for your time. I'm just interested in, in your take on, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence and the like and and the impact that they're having on uh, the world today. Are you optimistic about where we're going? Or is there a note of pessimism there too? Well, it, for, for, first of all, John, it happens very quickly. I mean, when I was young, computers were as big as this house. Yeah. They could compute one hundredth of what this can compute. Yeah. Yeah, we, as human beings, we're not good at dealing with very fast change. That's why climate change is very hard for the average person to understand. Um, but uh, I mean, so many things we do now, we do so much more easily and so much better because we have smart devices, which are, of course, using AI and um, other kinds of algorithms. But um, I'm not ready to um, sublet ethical decisions to uh, non-human mechanisms. I think people mm. individually and as a as a species, we need to decide uh, how, I mean, let's say, for example, you know, we could detect uh, through some kind of a powerful device um, uh, how to how to realize Brave New World and make some people alphas and some people epsilons. Uh, I would hope that we would have enough sense to say that's something we could do and we're not going to do it. And these are mm. intellectually graded things and Huxley's novel. Um, but we can't stop, even if you're in China or Russia, you can't stop the development of these powerful computation devices, and you can't control completely how they're used. And so, to paraphrase 
Benjamin Franklin, if we don't work on these things together and solve them, we're just going to hang separately. Yeah, yeah, no, that is absolutely true. Yeah, so in terms of just then kind of finally looking at the educational establishment, and, and this is every sort of education, are there certain types of things that they have been doing and ways of working that they need to give up now and replace? So, for, for example, the idea of learning by rote and you know learning things off by heart. I mean, you know, the technology is there. You never have to learn how to spell again because uh, Siri is there for you to <laughs> ask the spelling of every word. Um, so do we have to rethink education in its broadest sense? and do things very differently so that we uh, maximize the potential of the human being? Um, I would be conservative on that score. Um, you know, we've been educating people for a long time. Uh, we've also been miseducating people for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, instant cures never work. Um, so I would prefer to work with teachers and with institutions which are doing a good job now and see how they can be tweaked to do a better job. So, you know, let's just take Harvard, where I've been for over 60 years. Um, we certainly shouldn't stop classroom learning in, in seminars and so on. But if we find that some things work just as well online, we should try that. We should try that out. Mm. And we're going to find that statistics works, doing statistics works fine on, 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 online, doing English literature doesn't work fine on online. But yeah. I think it's a mistake in any sector to say, well, because we've got a new device, we're going to change everything quickly. We should learn from the people who do it well, but who are open to change. Uh, and certainly if I were teaching now, I'm not teaching anymore, I wouldn't throw out the playbook. If I were teaching literature, I want people to memorize poetry. I think it's a very good thing to do, okay. uh, but I wouldn't base the curriculum on that. Uh, yeah. I would say that's a, that's a bonus. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I must uh, I must travel to Denmark and, and see the, the place you mentioned that uh, has all your multiple intelligences worked out so that you can actually go around and visit each of them. I was very taken by that in, in, in your in your work. I'm just uh, like in, in conclusion, uh, I think it's is it eight currently or are there any candidates uh, for your multiple intelligence yeah. list that have made it in since we've been uh, <laughs> talking? But what are the ones that are hanging around there and, and how does that decision-making process work in terms of who gets in? Well, the decision is, I'm not going to make the decision anymore because it takes too much research and time is limited. Um, but if people follow the criteria, which we talked about earlier, what makes yeah. intelligence, they can make an informed decision and that's fine with me. This is not like discovering a new chemical element. It's discovering a better way to think about the mind. My absolute thanks to Hard Gardener for taking the time out to discuss his, his wonderful work, which has made such an impact on education and our understanding of intelligence in general. And, you know, I think we owe a debt of gratitude from all those people who maybe didn't fall into that tightly measured intelligence as defined by the IQ test. We feel truly liberated. Next on the Work Healthy podcast, we talk DEI and maybe B with Margot Slattery from ISS. Please join us then.